Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Death is a fact of life, but the experience of grief is unique to each of us. This timely collection brings together a range of voices to offer reflections on death and dying, from individual losses to large-scale catastrophes. I will now hand over to the acclaimed Susonke Msimang, who will be leading the narration of extracts from Our Ghosts Were Once People, Stories on Death and Dying, edited by Bongani Kona. Years and years. Twelve. For weeks I cannot sleep. My mother asks, what kind of child can't sleep? I'm ashamed of my anxiety. Her judgment doesn't help. I lie awake nearly every night, worrying about the fact that one day I will die. Most of the time this is a low-level dread, but at night, before I fall asleep, I feel it in my chest, the weight of it too large for my growing frame. I imagine myself in a coffin, but tell myself this is silly because when I am dead, I will not feel a thing. But the idea of feeling nothing is so appalling, so frightfully blank, that I rear up in my bed sobbing. Finally, one night, I go in search of my father and he tells me it's normal. And he says he wishes he believed in God because that might help, but he doesn't, so I'm going to have to stare it in the face. He assures me it will be a long time before I need to worry about death. I don't believe him, but I carry on regardless. Accepting that I will die, even if I hate it, is the first heartbreak I have encountered about which nothing can be done. Death is an immovable, unbreakable truth. I have been scared of dying since I turned 12. In 1986, the year of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, during the late stage of the Cold War, America and Russia were constantly on the verge of blowing up the planet, stockpiling nuclear bombs in the futile hope that whoever pressed the button first would die last. 1986 was also the year the space shuttle Challenger exploded in the sky, live on air. Seven American astronauts were incinerated, and for a long time afterwards I could not look up without thinking of their burning bodies made instantly into dust in the sky. My family was living in Canada at the time, and because of how close we were to America, it felt as though that terrible fire had burned in our own skies. I was certain there were astronaut ashes in the rain and in the Rideau Canal, which we skated across when it was frozen in winter. I was sure little particles of them were in the snow that made everything muffled and cold for months on end, until spring suddenly appeared. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The Challenger crash was my first memory of watching and re-watching death on television. I remember being astounded by the blueness of the sky and the brilliance of the day. There was no forewarning. Fifteen years later, I had the same feeling, watching a plane speed up and crash into Twin Towers on another perfectly sunny day. Death doesn't always announce its arrival with dark skies and thunder. In my twenties, I occupied the carefree gap between adolescence and childbearing. I was so busy living, I forgot to worry about death. 
Both my surviving grandparents passed away during this decade, but having grown up outside the country without them, I barely knew them, so I did not grieve them as deeply as my father did. He loved them, of course, but I suspect he cried also for the thirty years he had lost in exile, and for the decades he lived as though they were dead, even though they were alive the whole time, awaiting his return. I was thirty-four when my first child was born. The minute she was delivered, I began to live with the fear that she might die, or that I might die and leave her orphaned. She was tiny, and yet such a heavy burden, so heavy I forgot she was also a joy. Through her existence, I was suddenly invested in the project of immortality. I wanted her to live, and yet quite suddenly there were signs that the condition of the world was deteriorating. It was two thousand and eight. And there were signs that all of our lives were in peril. Thirty-four. I look at the veins under her newborn skin, and they remind me of waterways running off a large river. Her eyelids are a crisscross of tiny streams. The planet replicates itself in our bodies. In a haze of maternal love and fear, I realize that now there is more for me to worry about than just the ozone layer and nuclear apocalypse. The seas are full of plastic. And the temperatures are rising, and I feel these tragedies in my womb. I clench, and I feel the blood flow. This love is a new kind of grief, and in her first hours of life, I begin to mourn a sadness that is yet to come. When I was forty-one, my mother died. Grief, a word that seemed too small to encompass the world I had been plunged into. The feeling was bigger than my heart, bigger than my rib cage. It was larger still than Mommy's bed, which I slept in every night for weeks, not wanting to lose her scent. Grief was a constant. It was grit in my eyes, the loss of taste, and limbs too heavy to lift. Grief was my daughter. All six years of her, too scared to ask me anything because she knew that her questions might break those pieces of me that resembled the mother she had known before her Gogo died. Forty-one. The two of them, my mother and my daughter, are in the garden. My mother plants spinach, and my daughter attempts to feed the dogs grapes. They wander in loose comfort. The child as much in her element as the grandmother. At the chicken coop, they stop to gather eggs. My child is fearless and doesn't mind the squawking hens. They wander through fruit trees and chatter away like the best friends that they are. She is the first grandchild. The one who has been adored for the longest time. The last time they see each other, the night my mother dies, my daughter crawls into her lap, and they cuddle on the big couch in front of the TV downstairs in the big house that belongs to us all. This house has arms long enough to wrap us all, bedrooms and balconies, and a kitchen big enough to sit. I notice that my mother's hands are puffy, and her face is tired. I tell her to drink her medicine. Her arms squeeze her grandbaby, and she says, "Of course she will." She doesn't. The tragedy has already been scripted, and we are living through the last lines of the book of her life, and we do not yet know it. Hours later, cradled by her bathtub, in the house she loves, surrounded by her children and their children, my mother dies. My sadness at my mother's death is compounded by my daughter's confusion. What do you call this? Sadness squared, perhaps? The two of us are not alone in our sense of abandonment. We are all bereft—my sisters and our husbands, and my father, who becomes a ghost of himself almost immediately. Heartache multiplied by infinity. 
I never imagined what it might mean for my daughter to lose my mother. I thought only about her losing me. This is the problem with the calculus of risk. You never quite get the formula right. Insurance policies ask what you will do in the event that both spouses die. But tragedy's portfolio is complex. I never considered that I would lose my mother at the same time that my daughter would lose her grandmother. Multiple losses embodied in one woman's unexpected death. The rituals that followed, the vigils and the singing and condolences, gave shape to our mourning. But as Ursula Le Guin says, after the early burst of tears, after the praises have been spoken and the good days remembered, and the lament cried and the grave closed, there is no company in grief. It is a burden born alone. After the morning, as grief set in and hardened, there followed a time of utter desolation. Her death sent me into the territory of panic I had first encountered at twelve. I was no longer twelve, but I was still terrified by the knowledge that she had been claimed by what James Baldwin describes as the terrifying darkness from which we come and to which we shall return. Forty-six. This has been a pandemic of a year, but still somehow this miraculous thing has happened to my daughter's body. She has stretched and blossomed, and suddenly there is this, and she is in tears and does not want to grow up. And we are staring at one another in shock and grief and wonder. I assume she can bear life, and it makes me sad, and strangely complete to know that one day I will have outlived my usefulness on the planet, and she will remember me, and in this way I too will live. I had no more answers in the wake of my mother's death as I did as I lay shuddering in my bed in the months after the Challenger exploded. What I had, what I have always had, is an instinct to survive, and this instinct, so clear in the very fact of my daughter and in the need for me to keep her safe, has been my saving grace. As a child, I wept at the sight of seven men burning on the television screen. As a young woman, I cried at the sight of a plane crashing into sky and steel. In the months that followed, as war reigned on innocence, in the aftermath, I marched to mourn the deaths of strangers. In America, in my forties, I lost my mother, and I felt that I myself would die from the pain of it. Through it all, I have been fearful and anxious, and still, I have stared death in the face. Life's hardest moments do not require courage; they simply require accompaniment. And this, this I have had in abundance all the days of my life. Thank you so much, Sasanke. That was so moving and so beautiful,、um, and so apt, I think, for these days.、Um, so,、uh, a piece um, that's um, been included in this anthology of mine、um, was originally written for the Mellon Guardian Scott edition.、Um, it's、um, it's a very personal piece. It's、um, has a, you know much like Sasanke's, but in a very different way.、Um, And it basically reflects on the time、um, that I volunteered、um, here in my community to help bathe and shroud the dead.、Um, so, yeah, let me tell you a little bit more. When I first learned how to bathe and shroud a dead body, I was in high school. I remember the life-size doll my teacher used to demonstrate to the class the proper way to wrap a dead body in seven pieces of unstitched cloth. Back then, the greatest relevance of the demonstration was because it would form part of an end-of-year exam. Death felt too distant for us to actually summon this knowledge in any real-life situation. 
But less than two years later, I stood against the protruding edge of a steel table bath that had been rapidly brought into my uncle's kitchen in Pretoria. My grandmother had passed away hours earlier. I remember relatives around me encouraging me to participate to help bathe my grandmother. The experience felt surreal, as though it was happening apart from me. The shock of those last few hours numbed me to what lay before me, the body of someone I love being prepared to be lowered into the ground, never to be seen again. Those lessons at school suddenly held real life value. But when it was my own grandmother and not a doll in front of me, the theory of the rights felt hollow. Still, it was the theory, the lessons drummed into us at schools and madrasas that impressed on us the absolute importance of the ghusl, the bathing of the deceased. It's described as a further kifaya, an obligatory action that if one person in the community performs it, the obligation on the rest of the community is relieved. But if no one performs it, then the offense is committed by everyone in the community. Yet in those moments when grief is fresh, it's not thoughts of a communal obligation that dictate what you do. And when we are not aggrieved, busy as we've prided ourselves into being, few of us actually consider the administration of death. We take it for granted that there is someone with enough time and the requisite knowledge to do it for us, or for those we love. But at some point in the past six years, I guess it's now the past 10 years, in central Johannesburg, there was a real fear that there would not be any women who would be able to bathe and shroud the dead. And so my sister and I volunteered at a community organization in Fordsburg. The two women who regularly oversaw the bathing and shrouding of dead Muslim women in this part of Johannesburg were growing old. The head of one community organization was particularly concerned that when these two tannies, aunties, passed on, there would be no other women with the requisite experience to clean the dead. That he's now dead, whereas these two women are still alive, is a cruel trick of fate. My sister and I were earmarked to take over from Aisha Bai and Chotibai, as the two elderly women are affectionately known. But first, we'd have to work with them, learn from them, help them as far as we could. I wouldn't say my sister and I were enthusiastic to become substitute to Kamanis as the women who bathe and shroud the dead in the Malay, are known in the Malay community. But I accepted the importance of the work they do. Unpaid, anonymous work, fulfilling a religious obligation in the background of everyday life. With the air thick, with the smell of camphor and incense, I learned something about being part of a community. I learned something about serving other people without any expectation of reward, with often just the briefest acknowledgement of thanks. And yet it was not exactly morbid work either. In the time we had before a body arrived, we would laugh. The two old women would tease each other about their age, switching between English and Gujarati with ease. They would complain about the quality of the towels and assure us that by refusing to use the shower fixed to the bath table, and instead using jugs of water, we ensured the dead women we bathed were better respected. The men just used the shawaiya, Ashabai would say, while shaking her head. But how do they know if the water is right, if the pressure is too hard? They do everything slapdash, she would confide in a conspirational tone, assuring us, and herself perhaps. 
that we were more careful, more respectful, more empathetic towards the deceased. Our laughter and chatter stopped as soon as bereaved family entered the room. Then a body would be carried into the room by men and laid onto the table bath. When the men disappeared into an anteroom, the door shut and we began. I'm generally squeamish. But somehow in that room, my, my natural inclination to squirm away was quelled. Our emphasis on securing the dignity of the deceased, no matter what, helped to shield me from possibly gory sights. But it also taught me a lesson in respect for the personal of the individual, even in death. With time, my sister and I fitted into our roles. We knew what to do. Take off large pieces of cotton wool, crush camphor with a mallet, find large towels to cover the body, fill buckets with lukewarm water, make sure it's lukewarm without putting your own hand into the bucket and contaminating it. On the opposite side of the room, two of us would unroll the coffin, the seven pieces of unstitched white cloth that the deceased woman would be wrapped in after being bathed. There was a particular method, a cathartic routine that gave me something to do when I was not sure what to say to the bereaved family. Often, I would stand beside the buckets of water, dipping jugs into it and distributing them to the aunties and the family members, urging them to take the lead from the two old women, do as they do and say, and mostly, don't be afraid. Then there were the times when the aunties were out of town or unavailable. Suddenly, my sister and I were leading a room full of tear-eyed women in the last rites of their beloved. On at least one of those occasions, we went back to the books we used at school to make sure we knew how to layer the coffin. The responsibility was immense. It's been some years now since I've helped to bathe a deceased woman. It certainly was not a conscious decision to stop volunteering. I was unavailable a few times, they called. Then the calls stopped coming all together. And although the aunties are now both too frail to do the gusel and coffin, I've heard that another pair of women are now designated to Kamani's in central Joburg. All those fears of no one being around were disproved after all. I suppose for as long as the will for people to be buried as Muslim is strong, there will always be someone to call on, someone with the experience or indeed the textbook knowledge of what to do in those final hours. The experience of those few months has stayed with me though. The repeated experience of facing death as though it was routine forced a unique contemplation, not least an awareness of death. As a child, I learned that God is closer to me than my jugular vein. He is near, not remote. He exists within my being, not in the skies looming, looming above me. And although closeness here is meant to convey physical proximity, I've come to realize that it also evokes the necessity of God for life and death. It has also reminded me that a relationship with God is often precarious. It's prone to the protruding edge of an exposed switchblade. And yet, as I've grown older, I've felt the unshakable faith in this nearness of God waver. It's not that I've stopped believing, but the longer I've lived, the busier I've become. The grime of this world has sometimes made me forget God's nearness. Although I've always known that an attempt to reaffirm that closeness does not hinge on simply kneeling down longer before him, 
the experience of discharging a communal responsibility offered me a chance to reflect on self and other, individual and community, and how we come together in life and in death in his name. As I've read that, I just realized that um, Asha, by one of the one of the women I mentioned there actually passed on a couple of months ago. So I guess this is in tribute to her. Uh, thank you, Khadija. And I forgot to say thank you to Sasonka before that. Thank you, Sasonka, as well. So um, those were both really moving and really deeply personal pieces. And in a way, I'm coming with a slightly different angle. Um, I'm talking my pieces around the work that I do uh, in the Missing Persons Task Team in the National Prosecuting Authority of S South Africa, which is a project set up in government in terms of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is that government must continue trying to trace the fate and whereabouts of people who disappeared in political circumstances between 1960 and 1994, and to try to recover their remains where possible. So we're a mix of investigation and forensic personnel, small team. Um, and our work is at one level very political, but at the same time deeply intimate in that we work very closely with families. And at, it's at one level also very violent. We're dealing with stories of extreme violence, but also extremely loving. Um, and so the piece that I've written tries to reflect on aspects of our investigation work um, and tries to give little hints of how we do the work of investigation. Um, and I try to tell the story from the perspective of the grave, um, which is the way we do our work, really. We are, we are, we are at that level. Um, so this piece is, that I'm going to read is called Time. Uh, the overall piece is called Investigation Pieces, and this segment is called Time. We have many enemies. There is stony, flinty soil that blunts our spades. There is thick, wet clay that smothers the bones and grips our boots so tightly that they must be dug out. There are tree roots that imprison the bones in a latticed cage. There is acidic soil that erodes the bones and leaches out the last of their DNA. There are rainstorms, blistering heat, a water table so high that the bones are flooded below the earth, and we must work blind, groping below the water surface, reading the bones with our fingers as if they were braille. We combat both space and time, and the worst of the two is time. In the early years of our work, physical conditions appear to be our main adversary. As for time, the past we seek is frozen, the bones are immobile wherever they may be. A skeleton disintegrates so slowly that a year won't make a difference. There are no lives to be saved now. These deaths took place 20, 30 years ago. If I fret about a skeleton we must dig, Claudia reassures me, relax, he's not going anywhere. If he's there, we'll find him eventually. He's not going anywhere. But within a few years, we learn that everyone else and everything else is we're all departing, corroding in a relentless entropy. Everything around us is disintegrating, decomposing. Each place we go, everything we touch and every person we meet is unstable, dying off. 
Our cases may be decades old, but we are in a breathless race against time. Impermanence is our most deadly foe. I learned that there are two domains of space and time. There is the motionless time, the motionless past we seek, a moment where space and time intersected like X and Y coordinates on a graph or clues to a treasure hunt whose location never changes, the angle of a bullet, the spot beside a river. This is permanent, the place and time of death. Then there is our time, this time, now, draining like water through our grasping hands. A cemetery presents itself as a place of ultimate immobility. What is a graveyard but the end of time? Yet it evolves, here erupting, there decaying, as if it were a living organism. Below the earth, where microscopic changes take place in slow motion and decay advances in tiny, imperceptible measures, a skeleton may last for decades, outstripping our lifespan. But above the ground, humans, animal, nature, weather, rework the spaces perpetually. In Sinating Cemetery in Pietermaritzburg in 2005, during our first few months of work, the cemetery caretaker confidently points to two flat spaces on a sloping overground hill. This is where two MK members shot dead by police in April 1988 were buried, he says. Only a few scattered tombstones identify the bushy incline as a cemetery. Otherwise, nature has reclaimed the terrain as its own. A public exhumation ceremony with the Premier of the province and the local mayor is planned. Our unit head, Anton Ackermann, shakes his head. You'd better check those graves first. Imagine you open them in front of all these politicians and the families and they're the wrong graves. Claudia and I hastily open the two graves with a team of workers. Below, the remains are covered with blankets. Both were family burials. The cemetery caretaker, embarrassed, suggests it must be the next two graves. After eight graves with blankets are opened, it is clear he is mistaken. He has used a gleaming new tombstone by the road as his marker and counted out graves from there. Tramping through the grass, we find an old faded but still readable tombstone, barely visible, and use it as a baseline to construct the rows and determine the correct location of the two graves. The caretaker is wrong by two rows and a dozen graves to the left. The shiny new tombstone wrongly positioned on an old grave creates a disastrous domino effect replicated across the cemetery. We learn to regard a tombstone's monumental certainty with suspicion. Many tombstones are erected years, even decades after the death and the identification of the gravesite is prone to uncertainty based on vague memories and patchy records. The cemetery caretakers, the arbiters of space in all whom trust in whom all trust is placed, are key culprits in the misplacing of tombstones over the years, along with undertakers hired by families to erect a tombstone. In time, we become proficient in tombstone styles and their epochs of popularity. The old ones, plain and worn, are more reliable. A gaudy new granite tombstone parading on a grave that is decades old is a fraud, a flashy gangster in a shiny suit. On our first trip to Mbaleni Cemetery in Toyando to find the bodies of five MK members who were killed in the March 1988 Battle of Mutali River, green foliage strains and heaves like a, a jungle hiding the graves beneath tall 
thick bush. The old Venda homeland region is lush, almost tropical with mango trees, bananas, avocados, macadamia nut plantations, and its exuberant greenery has taken over the old parts of the cemetery. It must be slashed back by teams of workers with pangas. We open graves, checking their occupants until we find several with mul multiple bullet wounds, wearing fragments of identical overalls and boots. On our return a month later to exhume the remains, the graves appear to have disappeared. Our hand-drawn maps, here a tree, there a faded tombstone, there a pile of stones, don't match the spaces any longer. An, an invisible magician has transformed the environment. What the hell is going on? It takes some time to realize with disbelief that someone has erected a tombstone for their grandmother over one of our identified graves. It is covered with tarpaulin awaiting an unveiling ceremony. Ar around the grave, they have rearranged the stones and foliage, moving this and that out of the way. It takes a day to trace the family, to argue with them in the municipality, to convince them that their grandmother is buried a few graves over to the right. The municipality is afraid to act. It becomes acrimonious. I have an exhumation order, a legal paper. We dismantle the new tombstone with hammers and chisels and chip it out complete, undamaged, heave its granite parts aside and dig out our MK member beneath. Thank you, Bongani. Thank you so much, Madeleine. And uh, welcome back, Paula. And sorry again for the technical difficulties. Over to you, my dear friend. Yeah, thanks everyone, take two. Um, how to kill a man. This is how you learn how to kill a man. In broad daylight, flanked by flower beds in a farm on the outskirts of the city, under the instruction of a militia man who seems as dangerous as I'd like to become. A few weeks earlier, my internet search for martial arts classes leads to Krav Maga, the Israeli military street combat technique. It is not a sport practitioner's stress, but a survival toolkit for a brutal world. The first rule is to avoid conflict, but if you cannot, the second rule is maximum aggression, targeting your opponent's most vulnerable spots with a merciless cocktail of offensive and defensive maneuvers. There are no gains here, only the goal of disabling them as efficiently as possible. Kill or be killed. Just is the only local instructor whose contact details I find in an obscure website listing. There's not much information about him online, just his public Facebook profile, which includes a brief professional bio and a few personal posts. A security consultant whose work experience reads like a tour of conflict zones around the continent, Just has a penchant for Afrikaans ballads and assault weapons. In his most recent photo, taken in the Central African Republic, He's a pale hulk of sunburn in the center of a few black soldiers, all of them wearing combat gear, heavily muscled and armed to the teeth. That image keeps returning to my mind as Yust shows us how to break an arm, how to smash a nose, how to flip over an attacker who seizes you from behind. This is the most common angle of attack, he says. And I think he must be speaking about stranger attacks, not those from people you know, which can strike from every angle. Eight years earlier, I was fast asleep when Melo died. When the knock on my door came at 2 a.m., I assumed someone had locked themselves out of their room. 
As head student of the residence, an elected position that before that night had largely consisted of frivolous social duties, I had a master key in case of emergencies. So did Melo, one of the senior students contracted to assist with residence management, a vivacious forthright 22-year-old in the final year of her finance degree. She loved football, which was how we had become friends the previous year. I did not follow the beautiful game, but the communal lounge where Melo watched it also had a piano that I enjoyed playing in the evenings. Ah, please, Mozart, can't you finish playing later? The game is about to start. The moment it did, Mello would be lost in the screen, scolding incessantly. Stop sleeping. Are you serious right now? Father pressure. She would jump off the sofa one moment, curl up in a ball the next, her forgotten noodles gone cold in the microwave. Her theatrics made me laugh. I told her about my mother, also a fervent football fan, whose team allegiance shifted every season, depending on which player's personal stories she found most compelling. That season, it was Chelsea, much to Melo's dismay. Your mother likes the blues? Shame, we can't be friends. And that's how we became friends. When the World Cup started that year, I was drawn into the excitement and joined her to watch the African team's matches. In the intermissions, we got to chatting about our families, our classes, the petty dramas of our university town. He was in my class a small cohort that spent eight hours a day, five days a week, together in lectures and labs. Despite this proximity, I barely knew Chris. I had exchanged words with his best friend, a smooth talker with little respect for personal boundaries. But Chris was quiet. So when Melo asked what I thought about him, I vaguely remarked that he seemed nice. I had no particular reason to believe that he was not. I was fast asleep down the hall when he drove a pair of scissors into her repeatedly until her body lay lifeless. Even then, he was quiet. It was past midnight when a student noticed that the outer gate to our woman-only residence had not been locked as it usually was at 11 p.m. when the sub warden on duty would check the mandatory log of male guests to ensure that all men had left the building. But that night, Mueller was on duty and according to the log, there was still one man left inside the ex-boyfriend whom she had signed in hours earlier. When they knocked on her door, she did not answer. And only then did they look for the master key. And by then she was gone. Several hours later, I set off for classes as normal, ignoring my friend's appeals to take the day off, desperate for distraction. Later, I attended a meeting with the university administration, a thinly veiled public relations briefing prefaced with perfunctory condolences. Don't speak to the media, they urged us seemingly unaware that we could barely speak at all. I met a counselor who walked me through a cardboard cutout of the cycle of grief. Her road floated around me like meaningless noise. And then we had a vigil, and then we wrote platitudes on a card that would accompany Mello's body back across the country to her mother. And then we organized the memorial. And only then, as we sang the closing song, make me a channel of your peace, where there is hatred, let me bring you love. Only then, in the rawness of stillness, did sorrow rip through my shock. I sank into the pew and cried as the piano kept playing. Thank you so much. Wow, it's a moving story. Thank you. Um, Vonani, do you want to go? And then I'll come in after. OK. Thank you so much uh, to the incredible story, Paula, and um, all other pan panelists. Your personal tales are so you know, moving. Um, 
My piece that's included in the book is called Ancestral Wealth and is tribute to my father who passed away in 1989 when I was 17. It took me about 23 years to jot down you know, the lines that I'm going to you know, read now. And, and I discovered how loving and how special my father was. So um, in the poem there, you know, it's an admixture of uh, languages in some instances, Shitsong, but I hope you'll be in a position to follow the, the tale. It's in prose form. Ancestral wealth, this is from my father, Rissimadi Daniel Bila, 1931 to 1989. Under these tall, thorn umbrella trees, my ancestors dwell. Jonas is buried in a woven grass, Kenya, when Diamond woke up dead at 10 a.m., he was buried in the afternoon the same day. His body covered with white linen and a thin blanket. My ancestors dwell here, seated, facing home in the east, facing Bileni far away in Mozambique, a broken mattress and Shitungwani heaped on the grave, cracked enamel plates and marks heaped on the grave. Papa, when you finally got admitted at Giani Block, we thought the learned doctors who can see what's hidden in blood and water would remove these needles and pins and spears in your veins and weighted bones. But their bewitched green red flashing machines in theater confirmed you healthy. And when you got into the late train, into that late night train to Harankoa Hospital, far away in Pretoria, on that ultra distance puppy ride, we thought the learned doctors would have removed this excruciating pain in your chest and picking up bones. But doctors in white gowns saw no fault in your stuttering engine. They sent you home. You got into that long bumpy train uncured. They asked you to come with your wife on 4th December 1989 for possible heart surgery. And the next day you came back home, sat with your family round the fire. That night, you didn't cough blood clots nor groan. That night, you didn't vomit, nor was your body a river of sweat. Your face was sun beaming. Blue eyes were shining. We ate chicken stew and pap, drank rooibos tea and buttered bread with buttered bread. That night, owls and the wind didn't howl in trees. The, the mountain snake and zelhani didn't cry. Dogs and cats didn't wail or mew. That night I slept like a baby under these tall thorn umbrella trees. My ancestors rise and hold hands. They sing in unison, dance in rhythmic step around the fire. Wednesday, 13th September, 1989, 1 a.m. You asked mother to extinguish the paraffin lamp burning on the red polished cement floor. The time to switch off your tormented heartbeat had beckoned. That day you requested Manny Manuel, your concubine from Bokota, to sleep in the grass thatched Randavel with your girl children, because the last night of intimacy and pain belonged to your wife, Okisa Mwamahatlan, your black beauty of 26 years. She whose body glitters with gold, the door to wealth. Your last night belonged to your wife, who birthed you seven healthy children, children born between 1964 and 1980. The last night to outline your will 
because he knew Manawamun Ulikswani. The last night outlined how your homestead should be run so that you don't return home wearing shorts and run riot in case your house was turned into a playground. You sat on your three-quarter bed wearing that brown striped t-shirt from pep stores, eyes fixed on the old leaking zinc roof. Then you paged through the old mutual policy document and you said, Mana Om, he called me Om. Rwanguleri irakale, the roof is old. Sweetina and Zishavile, I have bought the bricks. Kambe asunge eneli kuakayindu yakase, but they will not be enough to build a decent house. Lokuwakunika swimalani swamina swapensheni, when they give you my little pension fund. Bumba yindu, build the house. Kamaraya Om, Kamaraya Simon, Kamarayimwan Yamakanani na Julia. A room for Om, a room for Simon, another room for Makanani and Julia. Lokoshkwembu Ashilonzinika Malembeyan Kombo Yohanya. If God had given me seven more years to live, Uom and Simon Abatabarkutireni. Uom and Simon will be waking. Abatakota Kushaisa Makanani na Julia. They would take care of Makanani and Julia. Then the burning paraffin lamp was extinguished, each sleeping in their separate three-quarter beds. Suddenly, a heavy hand whipped mother's shoulder. It was a grandmother, Nwasha Kombo, whose voice shrieked, Puka wenangwa lomo. Wake up, you die in far distant places. Awuswiwoni leswa kwaweriwa. Don't you see the roof is falling, collapsing upon you? All she heard was one groan. <laughs> and Papa, when she came to your three-quarter bed, Daniel Rsimatibira, the son of Diamond and Wazulu, had packed for good. Papa, your room was filled with cold air. Misty, cloudy smoke covered the room at 1 a.m. Mama says you didn't hit or kick the walls violently as you wrestled with the monster. Kuala Honzing longer, then I laid out his body. Zikoka Minkumba Nzizola Milenge. I removed blankets and elevated his legs. Zilola Mavoko Yalongoloka Nayena. I elevated his hands and arms along his body. Ziwietela Marshlo. I gently closed his eyes with a simple touch. Zimisula Shikanza, I wiped down his face. Ashambile Angasetela, he had bathed before bedtime. Mafaloyamina Amafile, I didn't feel any remorse. Even Zikomelela Mubedra, then I held the bed so firm. Zikukumbe Utapfuka, thinking that he would wake up. She searched for Ratex in the wardrobe. If she had found it, she would have crushed it, swallowed it to burn a liver and heart, and join you in the other world. How would she raise her children with scents from selling bananas and tomatoes at the Ilim market? Under these tall thorn umbrella trees, my ancestors rise and hold hands. They sing in unison, dance in rhythmic step around the fire uh, thank you so much Bonani. thank you very much
And then I'm just going to um, read from my piece in the collection. Uh, it's called The Descendants, and it's, uh, it's, it's really about my grandmother and my grandfather. And at the beginning of it is a extract from a poem by Habiba Badarun called The Promised Land. And the extract reads, our forgetting is also our home and why we never left the old country. An old black and white portrait of him hung in our living room. His slanted signature marked the books on our shelves. And once a month, cousin T and I walked my grandmother, Agnes, to the post office to collect his pension. Until the checks stopped coming in the late 90s, by then, all the money had been stolen by officials. She'd also get a monthly sum from the War Victims Compensation Fund. Like her husband, whom she never mentioned, Agnes had been a school teacher. She'd take us to the library on our way home from the post office. The books we read depicted suburban, white childhoods full of ease. We lived on a quiet street in a residential neighborhood called Hadfield in the south of Harare. It had been laid out as a whites-only suburb in 1920. Six decades later, as the era of settler colonialism drew to a close, droves of white families sold their houses on the cheap and left the country. My grandmother, with the help of her children, purchased one of those properties on the eve of Zimbabwe's independence in 1980, moving there from Farm 61, a home she had shared with her husband in Msengezi, an erstwhile native purchase area. She never returned to Farm 61, though it was hardly an hour's drive away, or rather, she only went there to commit the dead to her family graveyard. In my lifetime, I saw her bury her remaining two sons, a daughter who died in a psychiatric facility, and a nephew who had hanged himself on the farm in 2008. The police took four hours to arrive and cut cousin P down. His father stood by him the whole time, that whole time, in the rain, among the pine and gum trees. But that, as the saying goes, is a story for a different time. The war against Rhodesia began tentatively with the killing of a white factory foreman, Peter Johannes Andres Oboroza. Driving home with his family one evening in July 1964, he was ambushed by the Crocodile Gang, a five-member command unit aligned with the Zimbabwe African National Union, ZANU. In the ensuing manhunt, the Crocodile Gang's members fled to Zambia and Mozambique, the unit disbanding. The attack came as an inevitable climax to an atmosphere of increasing repression on the part of the whites, met with increasing hostility on the part of the blacks, writes scholar Michael Rubin. A year later, Ian Smith signed the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, severing all ties with the United Kingdom, which had planned to relinquish the, col the colony. The UDI set the rogue settler, rogue settler state renamed Rhodesia on an irreversible path towards war in a memoir reliving the second Chimrenga, Fei Chung recollects the violence and protests that erupted in 1965. Our school in Arara Township was surrounded by violence. White and Asian shops, white and Asian shops around us were burned down to the to black hawks. Churches and schools were attacked. Arara Township now resembled a city of ruins. The townships had become no-go areas with violence not only against other races but against blacks as gangs of youths went around demanding party cards. The second salvo against the regime came in April 1966 with the day-long Battle of Sinoya. Seven insurgents from Zanu's armed wing were infiltrated back into the country from Zambia, were gunned down by Rhodesian helicopters and the British South Africa police. The second Chimarenga, or revolutionary struggle as it came to be known, 
would claim more than 20,000 lives. It lasted until the Lancaster House Agreement was signed in December 1979, ushering in Zimbabwe's independence. My grandmother recalls that skeletons littered the countryside during the wartime. Go and tell my family that this is what has happened to me. The bones would rise to testify to passerby. Hundreds of young men and women left to show up the war effort without saying goodbye properly in the ritual sense, he said. They arrested souls buried in unmarked graves, now cried out to be returned. My grandfather was among those buried in the wild, like an animal slaughtered away from the herd. He was abducted from Farm 61 in September 1979 and never seen again. Something of that experience remained incommunicable until the day Agnes died 40 years later. This was in keeping with their reticence about the conflict, whose details you hardly discussed. Sorry, I'm going to stop it. It's beautiful, Bongani. Cool. Lovely. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just here to close off the um, formalities this evening. Um, but um, I'd like to really thank uh, Bongani for putting this wonderful collection together. And thank you so much to the contributors who have joined us to share your experiences and your exquisite writing with us this evening. I feel um, a little taken out of myself after hearing all those stories. Um, it, it's a bit of a strange feeling, but um, I think it's a really timely collection and I hope it will find uh, help readers find some beauty or solace in the sadness we're experiencing now more than ever. So thank you so much for, I know it's not, it's really not easy to um, come onto a platform like this and read out these kinds of stories. So we really appreciate it. And um, hopefully it'll encourage people to buy the book, which is a really wonderful object as well. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head on over to Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thank you for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.